It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, July 28, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. On tonight's California Report, as COVID-19 cases continue to rise, more cities begin mandating vaccinations for municipal employees. And the Cal State University system joins with the University of California requiring COVID-19 vaccinations for students and faculty attending in-person classes this fall. We'll take a brief look at local headlines and weather before KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca speaks to Nevada County's Public Health Officer, Dr. Scott Kellerman. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. First, it was San Francisco, then Pasadena. Now, Los Angeles is the latest California city that will require municipal employees to get vaccinated against COVID. If they don't, those employees will have to provide regular test results to show that they're COVID negative. In making an announcement last night, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti said the rapid spread of new cases due to the Delta variant is a major concern. We're facing a real threat, and the only way we'll gain the upper hand is by fighting back. The good news is that we have a vaccine. We have a safe and effective vaccine, something unthinkable a year ago. City of L.A. departments will be required to report employee vaccinations by August 13th. The city of Long Beach, meanwhile, has also announced it's implementing a vaccination or testing requirement for its municipal employees. And Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg says he may propose a similar plan for his city, although he would first meet with labor representatives and get approval from the city council. This all comes on the heels of Governor Newsom's announcement this week that state employees and health care workers would be required to show proof of a COVID-19 vaccination or get tested weekly. And following in the footsteps of the University of California system, the Cal State University system has announced that students and staff will be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 if they intend to take part in in in-person classes in the fall. The policy will make room for medical and religious exemptions, and unvaccinated students will have to undergo frequent testing. All campuses will have to verify the vaccination status of students, staff, and faculty by no later than September 30th although that deadline may vary from campus to campus. The CSU system had previously said that any vaccine requirement would come only after the vaccines received full approval from the FDA, but it's still unclear when that might occur. The decision to implement the rule was unanimous among all 23 Cal State University presidents. And in other news, Squaw Valley, the famous ski resort that once hosted the Winter Olympics, is preparing for a name change this fall. In response to community concerns about the derogatory connotations of its name towards Native American women. But another Squaw Valley, a small foothills community in Fresno County, is at the center of its own proposed name change. But as Valley Public Radio's Sarith Hawk reports, that sparked a debate. Gladys Dick McKinney has just made a quick stop for strawberry jello at the Dollar General on Highway 180. She's making a cake for her brother's birthday, but before she heads out, she takes a minute to talk to me about the proposed name change and even asks me to sit in her air-conditioned car. Go ahead, the door's open. She says she's lived here all of her life and doesn't mind the name. As far as Squaw Valley, 
offending me. That name does not offend me. And I'm an Indian woman, a mother. Dick McKinney is part of the Dunlap Band of Mono Indians. She says she first heard of the effort when it was scheduled for discussion at an Orange Cove City Council meeting in January this year. We're not even in the district. That's a city. We're county. The discussion was postponed, but not before it caused an uproar on social media because it surprised so many locals. Dick McKinney says she understands that the term may hold different meanings in other tribal regions. What does that have to do with us? That's a language in that area. Here, she says it just means women, even if it came from outside settlers. Dick McKinney suggests I talk to another lifelong resident, Lenora Cannon. We head east and a few minutes later arrive at a ranch house off of 180. Cannon, who is white, tells me everyone knows her as Muggs. My grandfather used to put me on the horse, they said, in front of him and say, what a cute little Muggins, and that name stuck. Muggs is 92, and she's a fixture here. She says she called up her Native American friends when she first heard of the name change to see how they felt about it, and most wanted to keep it. So why would somebody come up with that now when me, I'm 92 now, I never thought of something like that. It was always a thing of beauty to me. But Muggs realizes the name change is not up to her. According to the 2010 census, about 3,000 people live here. 85% are white, less than 3% are Native American. I would have to know how my Indian friends actually felt because I believe they're the ones that they would be the ones that would be hurting. And I agree with anything that they want. But Roman Raintree disagrees that locals don't want a name change. He says the tribes in the area are still applying for federal recognition, so they're afraid to speak out. I'd like to bring our uh, first uh, speaker. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he held a virtual presentation to discuss the history behind the word squaw. Raintree says the name is sexually derogatory to Native American women and girls, and that using it enables a history of violence against indigenous women that is still present today. This name lends itself to complicity. He's working on an application to change the name with the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. And an online petition he started on Change.org has more than 16,000 signatures to date. Fresno County Supervisor Nathan Magsig oversees the unincorporated area as part of his district. With this effort, I, I have no problem changing any name of any community, but it needs to be a process that, that's driven by the local people. Magsig says he's yet to see consolidated local support for the name change or efforts to hold a town hall meeting that all residents can attend. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. The law firm Perkins Cooey, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at perkinscoie.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, 
clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, July 28th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This morning, the union published a press release from the city of Grass Valley. In it, Grass Valley acknowledges the June 29th cyber attack in which an unknown source accessed the city's information systems and obtained data they threatened to publish if the city did not pay ransom. The city statement explains that after weighing the merits of protecting potentially exposed data and consulting with subject matter experts, they chose to pay a ransom to keep data from being exposed. The Nevada County Sheriff's Office says Monday's twin-turbo bombardier jet crash near Truckee Tahoe Airport has claimed the lives of six. This is an update to the Federal Aviation Administration's prior report of four deaths. All six individuals were on board the jet. Yesterday, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved $2 million in funds from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act to launch a new Community Resiliency Grants Program. The grants hope to support recovery and provide relief to community-serving institutions and programs. And now for regional weather. The National Weather Service warns of hazardous weather conditions due to developing thunderstorms in the Truckee Tahoe area. Moderate to heavy rainfall, hail, and winds in excess of 40 miles per hour will be possible. Thunderstorm activity should diminish by 9 p.m. this evening. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 69. Tomorrow, sunny and hot with a high near 96. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, isolated showers and thunderstorms before 8, partly cloudy with a low around 52. Tomorrow, scattered showers and thunderstorms mainly between 8 and 11 a.m., then mostly sunny with a high near 84. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 62. Tomorrow, sunny and hot with a high near 102. Up next, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca speaks to Nevada County's Public Health Officer, Dr. Scott Kellerman. The two focus on evidence-based medical responses to the pandemic. Dr. Kellerman provides science-backed explanations for many questions swirling around the pandemic and COVID-19 vaccinations. With so many theories and ideas and even misinformation about coronavirus out there, Here's a chance to make sense of what is actually happening in Nevada County. I recently sat down with Nevada County Public Health Officer, Dr. Scott Kellerman. The following is a short excerpt of our interview, and I really hope that you'll go to our website at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the extended version. I've seen a lot of doctors online being cited various social media platforms that claim that a combination of hydroxychloroquine with, uh, I guess it's pronounced azithromycin. They say that these doctors claim that these drugs in combination with zinc can help both keep people out of the hospital and for those that are already hospitalized can lessen either the effects of the disease or shorten the course of the disease. Is there any evidence that supports these claims? Well, as you know, um, not long ago, hydroxychloroquine was touted as being the end-all and be-all. This was the drug 
I'm very familiar with these drugs because hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are used for malaria. Where I work in Africa, we use we've used these drugs with some degree of regularity. Although we have switched to quinine rather than chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, I still use hydroxychloroquine. is very useful as an immune modulator in treating rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, studies have shown, you know, there was initially a lot of excitement about the drug. It's cheap, but it's not ineffective. A review of 12 studies and about 8,500 patients in countries around the world. And some of these studies were funded by the manufacturers who made hydroxychloroquine, um, did not reduce the amount of virus in the person's system, did not prevent hospitalization, and did not prevent death. So um, most practitioners believe that to consider hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, it doesn't work on a virus, um, is certainly inappropriate in the setting of COVID-19. It's been shown to be ineffective, and it has side effects. That's the other little problem. It does have side effects. Yeah, cardiac side effects. So it's not an innocuous drug. I've heard also about uh, ivermectin. Can you explain what that is and, and what it's used for? Yeah, ivermectin's a really interesting drug. I've used it uh, quite frequently, again, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's used to treat worms, nematodes, strongyloides, onchocerca. Alcacerca is, um, is a cause of river blindness. Um, there's a veterinary usage also. Uh, if you look at uh, dog heartworm medicine, sometimes it'll be mectan or ivermectin. It works on dog and their uh, diphtheriamitans. Ivermectin is an immune modulator, potential antiviral activity. Um, and it had early success. You know, people, early studies, small studies, in reviewing 24 random the real question was there were small studies, 20 to 400 people each, and um, and the deaths were not very uh, not very many. There are 128 deaths in there, so it really was hard to get much of a conclusion. Merck, the manufacturer of it of this drug, has suggested that it not be used for COVID-19. And an Argentinian uh, randomized control study of only 500 people said it did not prevent hospitalizations, but some studies are looking like it has has the potential. So we're looking at it. I mean, I think ivermectin is an inexpensive drug with relative uh, few side effects. Just remember that if you, it's mainly used in veterinary medicine here in America, so don't use the same dose choose for a horse. You know, that'd be a real mistake. Some people have gotten some real trouble with that. Um, and then I would check with your doc. But there are some interesting studies using ivermectin. And so the jury's out right now, but we don't have enough information now to recommend its usage. And like I say, the drug manufacturer is not recommending it. Other interesting drugs have been studied, even at the University of Washington, just north of us, is antidepressants, particularly one called Luvox. Again, they're immune modulators, and and they've showed some um, really exciting promise. Um, But until we get all the the data to show they're effective and and without side effects, then they're not... They're not really uh, recommended for use by by physicians or uh, healthcare providers. Moving to vaccines, how are these new RNA vaccines, like the COVID vaccine, different from, say, the flu vaccine? The science behind messenger RNA has been around a long time, probably 30 years. And actually, a guy named Bill Kelly, pretty extraordinary guy that our paths have crossed several times, started a lab at the University of Pennsylvania to develop a gene-based vaccine first gene-based vaccine was not COVID. It was uh, a DNA vaccine for Ebola. I, mean, I live in sub-Saharan Africa, and 
right next door in the Congo in Uganda, we were asked a few kilometers away is the Congo. And in Congo, they were uh, had an Ebola pandemic that uh, lasted for a couple of years. And they developed a DNA vaccine. The science came out of this University of Pennsylvania lab. And they immunized the people in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Congo against Ebola. And this was a war-torn area that... Um, no running water, no paved roads, no electricity. And yet, uh, six months ago, the Ebola epidemic was declared over. They're able to immunize the people in that area of the world. Can't we immunize Nevada County? That's a rhetorical question. But the messenger RNA are a whole new science. And science is so exciting, and the vaccine was seemed so promising. I was part of the trials at UC Davis. What messenger RNA is, you get a shot of messenger RNA, and what the RNA does is go into your cells, and it tells your cells to make a protein. That's all it does, and it dies. It's gone. And the protein you make is the spike protein that's on the outside of the COVID-19 virus. You've seen pictures of them around the globe and all these spikes on the side. And they found those spikes are important for replication and survival of the virus. So all it does is put a piece of the spike on the outside of, the, of your cell, your T cells and your B cells, which are the immune, immune complexes in your and your body come along and recognize that as being foreign and make antibodies to it. And then they wait. Uh, they form memory T cells and B cells and say, if we ever get something that looks like that spike protein, we're going to kill it. And so if you happen to be challenged uh, with uh, SARS virus and it enters your system, then these memory T cells and memory B cells will go and destroy it. It's real simple. So all it does is make a protein. It doesn't make the virus. It doesn't make the DNA of the virus. It doesn't do anything like that. It just makes a protein. And your body recognizes that protein is foreign and then kills it. And the memory T cells and the memory B cells last for months to years. Uh, it's an amazing vaccine. My guess is all vaccines will be uh, messenger RNA-based in the future because they are so safe and so effective. People have said that there have been a number of significant adverse events here in our county. And so I want to directly ask you, have you heard of any 18-year-olds having heart attacks as a result of receiving the vaccine or people in their 20s having strokes after receiving the vaccine here in Nevada County? Have you heard anything about this? No. <laughs> There's no. I talk to the hospital every day. Not quite every day, but very, very often. And then we uh, talk with the, the staff and administration there on a formal basis, at least once a week. And I review death certificates. It's not true. I can tell you if it was true, I would know about it. And you would have me on this show. And you should be grilling me. And, and I should be grilled. Uh, it's not true. So returning back to people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, it seems like a lot of people as previously mentioned, are doing, you know, these risk-benefit analysis for themselves. And it sounds like they really do think that the disease itself is relatively mild for people that are healthy and that really it doesn't make sense for them to risk taking what they're claiming is a completely untested COVID-19 vaccine. And for them, when they do the math for themselves, it's just not worth the risk. What do you say to people like that? Um, I think we need a conversation. You should have them on the show. We should talk. Um, I'm willing to communicate with them. Public health helps people's back. You know, we support people and we want to continue the conversation. 
I think it's inappropriate. Um, we are seeing people that get hospitalized who are younger. The average age of people getting the virus is, is substantially lower than it was initially, simply because a lot of the older people in our community have become immunized. It's just moving down the ladder. We do see people that get very sick uh, from COVID. And then we see people who have carried symptoms of COVID for a prolonged period of time, making them you know, literally incapacitated. And then the last thing is that, you know, um, you don't want to spread this to your friends and family and loved ones. Uh, you're not going to do that if you're immunized. If you're unimmunized and you get it, um, about 40% of the people that spread the infection are asymptomatic. Yeah, you talked about very little symptoms. There are people that have no symptoms. Yeah, maybe got a little cough or something in there and they get together with a group and they're talking or gathering, maybe doing a little singing. Uh, you're going to spread it. And, um, and you don't want to give this virus to somebody else. So get immunized. Dr. Kellerman, I, I, I want to tell you that I sincerely appreciate all the time that you have shared with me and with KVMR. And there's been talks about who should be given a platform to speak, whether that's on social media, on the radio, etc. And so I wanted to make sure that you had an opportunity to address the audience directly, if you'd like to. Thanks, Claudia. It was a real opportunity. I, when I took this job in January, I'm only here for a year, but how hard could this be? You know, we got a vaccine, uh, we get everybody immunized, and that's, that's going to other things. It's not the case. We got the Delta now. We're in a surge, and there's areas around the world and in Africa, only 1.2% of the population in Uganda is immunized, and our hospitals being overrun uh, with people that are, you know, have are <clears throat> sick and are dying from COVID. I like to say that this, neither fire nor this pandemic knows no boundaries. They don't know any boundaries um, geographic, and they don't know any political boundaries. These are common enemies. And how do we pull together as a community to look at it as saying, that is foreign, we're going to deal with it collaboratively, we're going to do with it in a community, we're going to do it in a healthy way, and we're going to do it with respect for one another and compassion. And I would hope that if we look at the virus and the fires the same way, that after this season, we can perhaps have another talk here is um, after fire season's gone and COVID's a memory, we can take on other issues that afflict this community, diseases of despair. We can talk about uh, addiction, homelessness, um, um, depression, things that are, affect our community and, and involve us all. So I'm hoping it's, it's still a hope, and but I'm still holding on to it that um, we can work together and we can collaborate to not only defeat a pandemic, but to bring us together in ways that we never thought was possible. So thanks, Claudia. It's my pleasure, Dr. Kellerman. Thank you so much for your time. That's our newscast for tonight, Wednesday, July 28, 2021. We get support from Briarpatch Food Co-op, featuring an in-house deli and bakery, sustainable meat and fish department, and certified organic produce from local farms. Now hiring, 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Coming up at 6.30 is the 13th anniversary show for The Sages Among Us, hosted tonight by Taylor Wolf. Then at 7, we bring you Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.
Thank <laughs> you.